This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. John and I have another episode, clearly. Otherwise, why would you be listening right now? And this episode is all related to my favorite class of medications. That's right, SGLT2 inhibitors. All right, John, uh, what does your article have to do with SGLT2 inhibitors? Yeah, so this one's going to be a bit of a spin on SGLT2 inhibitors in the frail adult. So this is a study, the efficacy and safety of dapagliflozin according to frailty in heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction. And it's a post hoc analysis of the DAPA-HF trial published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, April 2022 uh, by Butte Awesome. Maybe at the end, I'll tell you a funny story about what they call Annals of Internal Medicine. But uh, yeah, we'll leave that in the end. This is a teaser to see if people want to listen to the whole episode. All right, focus, Mike. Um, What was the research question here? They wanted to assess the efficacy of dapagliflozin according to frailty status in patients with heart failure. All right. And why was this important? Uh, well, frailty, which there is a formal definition for, and I should have known this, I guess, but you know, you think about frailty, but what is it really getting at? Well, it's referring to a patient's vulnerability to stressors due to a loss of the homeostatic reserve related to, but distinct from aging and associated comorbidities. So patients with heart failure are up to six times more likely to be frail compared to the general population. In the frail heart failure patient, there's a higher risk for decompensation, which includes things like admission, you know, decline and death. Often, you know, as a prescriber, there's a bit of a balance between evidence-based therapies while concerns for, can my patient actually tolerate this medication? Like, am I going to cause too many side effects? Are they going to actually see the benefit of the medication at all? And so the purpose here was, you know, we know DAPA really is impressive when it comes to reducing risk for worsening heart failure events and death. But is it effective in that frail, older medical patient? Yeah, I'm convinced it's something I debate all the time, especially when I'm on service and and caring for frail, older adults. What was the study design here? So this was a post hoc analysis of the DAPA-HF trial, which was a randomized controlled trial, double blinded, placebo controlled, where patients were randomized to 10 milligrams of dapagliflozin versus placebo. Some of the key inclusions included a diagnosis of CHF, uh, NYHA class two to four symptoms, an EF of 40% or less, and already on optimal treatment with an elevated BNP. There were a whole bunch of exclusion criteria, including a blood pressure of less than 95 systolic, a current acute decompensation of heart failure, a recent or stroke, um, but also outside of cardiovascular and renal disease, you know, if a, someone had a life expectancy of fewer than two years. Now, when it came to defining frailty, they used a 32-item frailty index, and this was something called the Rockwood Cumulative Deficit Approach. And basically, you know, they included factors from the medical history, vitals, labs, um, quality of life and functional status, and they ultimately categorized patients into non-frail, more frail, or most frail. There were a few different outcomes. There was a composite of worsening heart failure, which included a composite of hospitalizations, ED visits, or cardiovascular death. And the secondary analysis included those individual components. And they also looked at some other things, including change in physical and social activity uh, and some kind of quality of life measures. Uh, and there was a pre-specified safety analysis. And a fun fact, trivia point, is that... Um Rockwood, I think it's Ken Rockwood, I hope I'm not wrong, is Canadian. So this is some nice uh, uh, Canadian content when it comes to the, what is it called? The frailty risk score or something like that? Yes, yes. So uh, there you go, Canada for the win. Uh, what did the patients look like in this study? 
they had frailty data available for 4,742 out of the 4,744 patients that were randomized. 50% of patients were considered class one frailty, 34% were class two, and 16% were class three. Higher frailty patients tended to be older, more often they were white, they were more likely to have cardiovascular and non-cardiovascular complications, they had higher blood pressures, worse NYHA functional class, and they also tended to have uh, be more likely to have a defibrillating device and less likely to be on certain medications including a mineral corticoid receptor antagonist therapy. Uh, median follow-up was 18.2 months. Okay. And what did they find? Well, for the main result, when they compared dapagliflozin versus placebo, it did reduce the risk for worsening heart failure and cardiovascular deaths across all frailty classes. In the highest frailty group, the hazard ratio was 0.71 and it was statistically significant. So when you kind of break down the number needed to treat, so number needed to treat to prevent one event per 100 person years was 31, 25, and 15 going from those kind of lowest to highest frailty class score. Some of the secondary outcomes also showed reduction across all of the outcomes, although absolute reductions were generally largest in the most frail patient. They also had that quality of life data, and that was measured at baseline and then at eight months, and they showed greater improvement in quality of life in those that were at the highest frailty group. Now, when it came to safety, the proportion to discontinue treatment or who had an adverse effect increased across frailty classes, but there was no between treatment differences between DAPA or placebo. Cool. What were the main limitations? So as part of the exclusion criteria, they did ultimately select out both the most frail patient, but also perhaps the lowest frail patient. So maybe we're kind of dealing with some kind of intermediate group of frail patient. Though when you look at that table one, I mean, it's pretty impressive. Like I think before seeing this paper, there would have been a lot of patients who I would have assumed would not be eligible for this medication and they would have been included in this trial. Yeah, that's, it, it is impressive. I, I'm still a little bit skeptical just because if you were well enough to be in a randomized trial, like how frail were you? Uh, I, like the frailty I'm thinking about is what I see on the internal medicine ward, but maybe that's my own bias. Anyway, what's the take home point here? Uh, so compared to placebo, dapagliflozin reduced the risk for worsening heart failure events, cardiovascular death, and all-cause death, and also improved quality of life across all levels of frailty. Well, it sounds practice changing. I would say it is. I mean, I think what this really provides us with is some reassurance when we're making clinical decisions in some of our more frail medical patients. We can refer back to this trial to show that, in fact, across frailty groups, your absolute benefit improves and increases by being more frail. I mean, it's pretty impressive. So then are you finally going to start prescribing these medications or do you want another randomized trial? <laughs> to be fair, I've already been prescribing them. Uh, but now in my frail patients, I'm going to give them a shot. Yeah, it sounds like some geriatricians perhaps should be listening to this episode. All right, continuing on the theme of SGLT2 inhibitors, um, this study was a meta-analysis uh, published today, August 28, 2022, but it'll probably come out sometime in September. And the article was entitled SGLT2 inhibitors in patients with heart failure, a comprehensive meta-analysis of five randomized controlled trials. All right, this is another like really hot off the press paper. So what was the research question here? Are SGLT2 inhibitors effective for patients with heart failure? And in particular, they're interested in preserved ejection fraction heart failure. All right. Why did you like this study? 
SGLT2 inhibitors are strongly recommended um, uh, as per the guidelines to treat patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, but their clinical benefits at higher ejection fractions are less well established. We now have two large-scale trials, the Emperor Preserve, which was for empagliflozin, and as of yesterday, um, the Deliver trial, which delivered the results of um, depagliflozin compared to placebo in patients with preserved ejection fraction uh, heart failure. So clearly these authors were buddies and knew what they were doing and said, hey, I'm going to submit this and it's going to get published. And at the same time, we should work on this meta-analysis, which is pretty smart. I would have done the same. All right. So how do they do this study? So it was a meta-analysis of five randomized trials, uh, including the DELIVER study, which was published, I think, yesterday in the New England Journal of Medicine. So for individuals who are unfamiliar with the DELIVER a randomized trial, it randomized patients to either DAPA or placebo uh, for patients with preserved ejection fraction heart failure. So if you were listening to my brother, he was sharing the results from the DAPA-HF uh, trial in a subgroup. So that one was individuals with an ejection fraction less than 40%. And now we have the DELIVER study, which included adults with an ejection fraction above uh, 40%. It found a 3% absolute risk reduction, which is really impressive um, in the risk of heart failure, hospitalization, or cardiovascular death, regardless of whether or not had somebody had diabetes. So, of course, the DELIVER study was just one part um, of this meta-analysis. There were five randomized trials in total, and the primary outcome uh, for the meta-analysis was to report the time to heart failure, hospitalization, or cardiovascular death, and there were many secondary outcomes and secondary analyses and subgroup analyses. As noted, the most relevant was looking at individuals with an EF greater than 40%. Okay. So what did table one look like? How many patients are we talking about here? So uh, 22,000 patients. And for those with preserved ejection fraction, closer to 12,000. Um, so two of the randomized trials were for dipagliflozin, two for empagliflozin, and one for sotagliflozin. That was actually an inpatient trial. Uh, across the studies, the median follow-up was approximately 20 months. In terms of the patient characteristics, 75% uh, were men, average age was 65. The ejection fraction in the preserved trials um, was an average of 55%, and in the reduced ejection fraction, closer to 35%. A mean GFR was 60, uh, half head deep diabetes. And as you can imagine, these patients were on all sorts of other medications uh, for their heart failure, like a beta blocker, ACE inhibitor, spironolactone, Arnie's, etc. Okay. Uh, and I guess that was even though they were like preserved EFs. So maybe they were on them for whatever, like their hypertension or their other comorbidities. Yes, I should mention I was being sloppy. Um, you're totally right. So in the studies with reduced ejection fraction, that's predominantly where you saw the sort of sandwich of medications of ACE, spironolactone, and an Arnie. Whereas in the studies with preserved ejection fraction, you didn't see quite so many meds. But it was interesting in one of those trials, like 85% of the patients were on an ACE inhibitor. But to your point, maybe it was for their hypertension and not the heart failure. Okay. So can we continue to use these medications? Do we finally have a magic bullet for preserved EF? Yeah. I mean, it's impressive here. So what they observed was a 20% relative risk reduction in heart failure or cardiovascular death, as well as a 10% 
relative risk reduction in all-cause mortality. That's really impressive. This was regardless of their ejection fraction at baseline, regardless of whether they're under 65 or over 65. There was no clear differences in individual racial groups or differences by sex or diabetes status, if I haven't already mentioned that. And again, we are dealing with a composite outcome here. So when you have a composite outcome, the obvious question is what's driving it? And it appeared to be equally weighted uh, reduction, both heart failure, hospitalizations, and CV death. A really important consideration is uh, safety. So there was no increased risk of amputation, hypoglycemia, DKA, or renal events. But of course, trials are never powered to detect rare adverse events. And also, kind of like your last study, they did look at the impact on quality of life, and they observed improved quality of life for individuals who received an SGLT2 compared to placebo. Okay, that's pretty impressive. Uh, tell us about some limitations. Yeah, a few limitations. One I alluded to, um, they're totally underpowered for rare adverse events. So, you know, randomized trials are the path forward when you want to know, does this drug work? But if you want to know, does this drug hurt? Um, and that adverse event is somewhat rare, a randomized trial is not the way to answer it. Also, we're dealing with limited power. Yes, there were lots of patients, but in a meta-analysis, really your unit of analysis is the individual trial. So I had like five trials. Um, there's also an incredible amount of conflict of interest among the co-authors. I don't think that's a fatal flaw, obviously, uh, but it is an important thing for us to at least think about. Okay. What's the take home here? SGLT2 for all patients with heart failure, probably. Okay. Like these are impressive, really impressive. If you have a patient who has heart failure and they're seeing you in clinic and you're not prescribing them an SGLT2 inhibitor, yeah, how come? <laughs> so, you know, for me, as long as your ejection fraction for empagliflozin, as long as your ejection fraction is above 15%, here's your SGLT2. For depagliflozin, as long as your GFR is above, I don't know, 25, here's your SGLT2. Jokes aside, I think a really important consideration is costs. And this randomized trial, or pardon me, this meta-analysis didn't have anything to do with cost or cost effectiveness. Um, but that, of course, is an important reason to give pause before you prescribe the medication. But if they have drug coverage or, you know, in the case of Ontario for over age 65, it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's hard not to give these meds for people with heart failure. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Like it is, it would be really nice to see kind of a breakdown of a cost benefit analysis, but my goodness, the amount of comorbidity and burden on the system for patients coming with decompensation from their heart failure, I, I, I just have to kind of presume that there's going to be a cost benefit as well. I think you're right. And, and you know, for me, I'm obviously a big fan of SGLT2s and have been an early adopter of them. In the setting of preserved ejection fraction, I was maybe slightly more hesitant because there was only that one randomized trial, um, but now there's another uh, randomized trial. So yeah, I'll, I think I'll certainly be uh, handing these out to adults with heart failure, assuming they can afford it and assuming they're not at a very high risk of diabetic ketoacidosis. All right. I know the answer to this already, but practice changing for you? Yes. Yes, sir. Or, or practice affirming. Yeah. Sounds good. All righty. So uh, let's move on. Talk about some good stuff. What do you got first up, Mike? More SGLT2s. Um, so 
This was um, a work from my research lab. We did this in, in concert with a patient partner. It's called sglt2rx.com and I'm typing it right now. And you can click whether the adult has type two diabetes or no diabetes and enter their age and GFR and a couple things. And then it gives you um, all sorts of details about these drugs, uh, a handout for the patient, uh, as well as information about their cost and about their side effects. So I am proud of my research team, hence this shameless plug. Very cool. And how about you, John? What good stuff uh, are you going to talk about? Well, I found this article, but now the more I think about it, I wonder if it's actually a bad stuff, but it was kind of neat. So in Texas, uh, global warming and droughts, uh, but a river. Uh, time out, John. If it's Texas, there's a very good chance this is not good stuff. Yeah. I hope this isn't about guns or abortion. Or about, okay. Anyway, keep this going. This is yeah. about dinosaurs. So uh, a riverbed dried up and they found these dinosaur tracks at the bottom of the riverbed that are like 113 million years old, which is just kind of cool. But so why is it bad stuff? Well, the riverbed dried up. And so is this us going the way of the dinosaurs too? If global warming keeps on going, I don't know. It was neat. You can see Prince of a Dinosaur. It's pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. And I'm sure in Texas, I I I feel like there aren't too many people worried about global warming. So I'm sure they're turning it into a theme park <laughs> or something. But anyway, um, if there's any listeners in Texas, feel free to send me an angry email. Um, all right, John, uh, great to record and we'll chat again soon. We'll talk to you later, Mike. The Roundtable is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of the Roundstable, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support. <laughs>